with me to the book of Exodus, if you will, Exodus chapter 2. And I want to, I, I love to have announcements, and for so long we didn't have any announcements except hang in there, and hopefully we'll see you next week. And uh, I'm just so thankful. Today is the first day in almost two full years that we had Sunday school. And I got to tell you, it was a help. I think it was a help to everybody here. I know it's a help to this service. And I know that if you weren't able to make it uh, to a Bible study this morning, that it'll be a help to you. And so I want to encourage you that 930 every Sunday morning now going forward by the Lord's will. Uh, we want to study the word of God. We want to be faithful to the word of God. And, uh, and so 9.30 and then right after, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to do our best. We got a little carried away today because we haven't had Sunday school in so long. So uh, we went a little bit long, but uh, we want to be careful and then come in here and then our, our Sunday service. Now, this week is a unique week and next weekend will be a unique weekend in several ways. First, this Wednesday night, uh, I want to ask as many of you as possibly can be here to be here for a special time of concentrated prayer for our revival meeting that will start this following Friday, Friday at seven o'clock. Dr. John Getz Sr. will be here and he'll be preaching Friday night, Saturday evening, and then Sunday morning twice. So Friday night at seven and then Saturday morning, fellas, we want to have a men's uh, prayer breakfast and uh, Brother Dave Osuna is going to come and he's going to uh, cook his infamous, if not famous, uh, blueberry chocolate chip fresh fruit pancakes. So uh, any of you don't remember those, they're worth remembering. And so we're going to have all the different things. He's going to take by order. What do you want? Chocolate chip. I want one blueberry. I want one banana, whatever. And he's going to make them for us. And uh, we're going to have breakfast. And then Dr. Getz is going to preach to the men. We're going to pray again for the services. Saturday evening at four. I'll be sending a letter out uh, just in case you guys are looking at me like, I'm not writing this down. And I'm just so Saturday at four, we'll meet for an early service that evening so that we can get home, get enough rest for the next day. So Saturday evening at four, he'll preach again. Sunday morning at 930, right in here, he'll do the Bible study combined with everybody and uh, except the teenagers, Randy, I want you to go ahead and keep them. Uh, and then uh, we'll be in here for him to preach. And then we'll take a small recess. And then Sunday morning, of course, at 1030. After the service, we're going to have a fellowship and uh, we're going to provide the meat again. We want you to sign up for sides, macaroni salad, potato salad, uh, things that'll go with smoked barbecue. And then we'll go right back out after the service and then we'll have a fellowship like we did in September uh, for the anniversary. And so uh, I hope that you'll make it a part and a point to be at every single hour that you can of preaching. You say, why? Because we need it so desperately in the hour that we live, uh, that we're living in. We, we, there are so many voices. I mentioned this this last week. There are so many voices and so much noise in the world. And we want and we need the word of God more than ever. So I want to encourage you this Friday at 7 and then Saturday morning, fellas, at 9.30, 4 o'clock on Saturday evening, then Sunday morning at 9.30, and then Sunday again uh, in the morning at 10.30, and then a fellowship afterward. Now, fellas, how many of you think that you'll be able to make it 8.30 this Saturday morning for a pancake breakfast and prayer? How many of you? Let me just see your hands. Lift them up high. I can't count this, all right? One, two, three, fill four, five. Uh, anybody else? I have five. Can you give me six? Anybody have six? Can you get seven? There's six. Okay, Chris will be seven or eight. Okay, all right. So right in there, about 10, uh, 10 to 15, I think we'll be okay. So good. Uh, and I'm sure there may, may be some that, that aren't here that may be able to come. So we'll plan for that. Good. Exodus chapter two. Did I tell you where to turn? For two Wednesdays in a row, I've forgotten to tell people where to turn. I say, open your Bible and then never say anything. And then they all look at me. And uh, so Exodus chapter two. Um, I want to preach this morning a message called a new year, a new desire. Does everybody have an outline? 
Did we get those out? Anybody need an outline? Okay, several. Okay. Raise your hand there, Steve. You want to divide and conquer there with Brother Keen? I apologize for that. Did Ruby just rip those out of your hands, Steve? Threw them on the floor? There we go. I apologize for not getting those to you. Exodus chapter 2. I've been talking about a new year uh, and, and the idea of being new because we all like to start new things at the beginning of the year. And I've been speaking from the standpoint of we all talk about things new that we want to do physically or different like that. And yet I, I think last week from the word of God, we can see that God is for change, but he's for spiritual change. He wants us to be transformed in the image of Christ. And in lieu of two things, one, the Lord's table today, but also in lieu of our revival meeting uh, with Brother Getch this next weekend, the Lord impressed upon my heart this passage of Scripture in my devotions. I started over again at the beginning of the year uh, to read through the Bible. And as I was reading this passage of Scripture, I just really felt impressed to read it again and then to read it again and wrote down a few things that I want to share with you today. Exodus chapter 2, we want to look down at verses 23 through 25. And uh, I, I'm not going to give a broad, uh, I'm going to give a very broad and very brief uh, context to this by way of introduction, and then we're going to jump right into it, because we're going to take the Lord's table today, and, and hopefully, by God's grace and with His help, we'll be able to make the tie, and you'll see where I'm going here. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23, the Bible says, and it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died And the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Some very unique words, would you agree? Some very unique passages of Scripture uh, I want you to notice, though, that the Bible says in uh, at the end of verse 23, they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And then I want you to see these first three words in verse 24. And God what? And God heard. And God what? And God heard. Father, I yield myself to you and I ask for your help. I ask for your Holy Spirit to help me get out of your way. And Lord, that you'd simply use me as a vessel to convey your message. I pray that you'd be pleased. I pray that you'd speak to all of us personally. God, I'm so thankful for your impressions during our time together. I look forward to them. I look forward to more of them. And God, I look forward to you helping us as a people today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Up to this point in Israel's history, if you read the text, because the Bible says here, it came to pass in process of time. Up to this point in Israel's history, nothing has been easy, all right? Uh, Joseph, Jacob's youngest son, had been made the prime minister of Egypt with the sole purpose of preserving the nation through a worldwide famine, and he did that. However, after his death, things went south again. You'll notice how this passage of Scripture says, and it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died. Now, the reason that that's so specific in the Bible is because that king that died is the one that made Joseph the prime minister and the ruler of all of Egypt. He basically said, Joseph, you're the man I can see that God's with you. I know that you know what to do. So I'm trusting you with everything. The only thing in the kingdom that you're not going to have is my seat on the throne. 
So whatever you say for us to do as Egyptians in order that we might stay alive in these years of feast and then of famine, I want you to be in charge of. And through that, we know that God preserved his father Jacob and all of his brothers uh, and, and preserved a nation. Now, after that death, after the guy that was so favorable to Joseph, the Bible says it came to pass in the process of time when the king died in Egypt that the children of Israel sighed by reason of their bondage. The new Pharaoh of Egypt misinterpreted the blessings of God on Israel. The population growth. The Bible mentions it twice to this point that they grew and they grew and that God had blessed Israel as shepherds and that all of their flocks increased and their families increased. But the new Pharaoh misinterpreted the blessings of Israel and took it as a threat. He didn't see it as a blessing. He took it as a threat and he ordered the killing of all male children. Remember the story. He went to the midwives and said, listen, when one of those Hebrew ladies decide to have a baby, if it's a girl, keep it. If it's a boy, toss it into the river. Remember that? Well, that was because he was threatened by the population. He wanted to control that. As we come to chapter 2, the Egyptians have come to understand, wait a minute, the population growth of Israel can actually be a good thing, Mr. Pharaoh, because it means that you have more slaves. If you just treat this right, because remember, let me back up. Remember in the process of this time now when he's telling people, that the midwives that you have to kill all these boys that moses was born and it was the parents first of all it was the midwives that said uh no we're not going to kill all the male boys and so the population continued but it was during that time that amram and jochebed said hey we have a little boy what are we going to do uh well we're going to put it in an ark and we're going to let god take care of it and what did god do god brought it to pharaoh's daughter and we know the story moses grew up and was spared okay now, during all of that, the Bible tells us that this growth of Israel to the Pharaoh became a good thing because it meant more slaves to do all the heavy lifting. They built Ramesses was one of the cities and Pidon was another one. And, and they used the population to their advantage. Egypt takes and enslaves them. It's during this time of hard labor and rigor that our story takes place. And as God's people cry out, according to scripture, from their circumstances, the, the Bible reveals several important details about many different things. First of all, it talks about the bondage of God's people and why. See, most of us don't study the rest of the Bible to find out, and many of us sitting in this room don't even know why. In fact, many times have I said before this study, God, why 430 years? I mean, good night. Does it take that long? Uh, God, why, why did they, why were they in bondage anyway? Why did you even allow that to happen? You promised that you would take them out and bring them in. Why did that happen? That, that 430 years just was mind boggling to me. Reveals the bondage and why. And it also reveals the heart of God's people and how it changed. Then it reveals God's heart for his people and how it never changed. It also tells us what to expect when our prayers are from the right heart. One of the most encouraging passages of Scripture, the Bible says, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage, and God heard their groaning. That's a fantastic verse. So let's dive into the Bible this morning, and I want us to carefully consider three elements of the story. Let's just think about, first of all, they cried. They cried. They audibly lifted up their voice. The Bible says, and it came to pass in the process of time that the king died, 
the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel first sighed by reason of their bondage, and then they cried. They sighed by reason of their bondage, and then they cried. We know from Scripture that God does deliver Israel. How and how? Uh, you know, if you want to call it the deliverance day, D Day was coming, but the details that precede that day are extremely relevant. For instance, the people cried in the Bible explains to us, letter A, that they cried out of their circumstances. First, they sighed. That word sighed means that they groaned. It means to moan without pain. And if any of you have ever sighed in your spirit or had something awful happen to you, you know this. You remember from when you were little, whether you were hurt or somebody did something to you and you cry and you just moan and you cry and it's a deep grieving. They're, they're to the point where they're moaning about their condition. The difficulty surrounding their circumstances became painful and their moaning then turned into groaning. Uh, they're, they were, they were sighing and groaning out of their circumstances. That was the source of their cry. Secondly, I want you to see the circumstances brought them to repentance. Now, immediately when I make that statement, you're going, wait a minute, what do they have to repent of? I mean, certainly it's not their fault that they went into bondage. I mean, it was just a selfish king who was acting selfishly. And it was another, it's another Bible example of how uh, tyranny reigns in a monarchical government and how he just basically had the, the position and the power to do whatever he wanted. And it was just for no good reason. Well, let me, let me just talk through this for a minute. Then I want you to see what the Bible says. When Joseph was ruling in Egypt, everything was good. The people were comfortable. The people had plenty of food. They were in the land of Goshen, the best of the land in Egypt God had given to them. Everything else was good, living a life of ease, but not now. Egypt no longer meant comfort to them. It no longer meant plenty. It no longer meant ease. Egypt now at this point in the story, meant enslavement. It meant a life of hard labor and very harsh treatment. Just read how they treated them. Now note this fact. Many of the Israelites to this point, according to the Bible, had forsaken God. Wait a minute. They did what? They forsook God. And they were worshiping idols. They were worshiping the false gods of the Egyptians. And I want to call your attention to a verse that tells us that in Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 7 and 8. It's interesting how the Bible can open up the doors to other places in the Bible. It's interesting how the keys to really finding out what God's word says is already in the word of God. And it's mapped out. Ezekiel 20 verse 7. Then said I unto them, cast ye away every man the abominations of his eyes. And defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Verse 8. But they rebelled against me and would not hearken unto me. They did not every man cast away the abominations of their eyes. Neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then said I, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them. Notice what it says. In the midst of the land of Egypt. Egypt. Oh my goodness. This week something was completely what was unknown to me totally changed the narrative of 430 years. Obviously the days of plenty and ease meant that the Israelites became spiritually soft. That's why Charles Spurgeon said blessings can end up being a curse. 
and lead to bondage. It's harder to abound, he said, than it is to base. It's harder to abound with blessings. They became more interested in the things of the world than in the promises of God. Many became carnal and fleshly, forsaking God, according to the Bible, and worshiped false gods. Scripture actually says that this is the reason that God allowed the Israelites to be enslaved and to suffer so much in Egypt that the bondage and suffering were a part of the discipline and chastisement of God. Remember Hebrews 12 and verse 6, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and he scourgeth every son whom he receives. Allowing the people to suffer was God's way of awakening the people to turn back to him. I'll say it again. Allowing the people to suffer was God's way of awakening them to turn back to him. Now, here's what I want you to get in the midst of this. Sadly, it took him over 400 years. It took him over 400 years before they turned. Listen to the details that we may not think of when we read our Bible. Generations of families died in bondage because they refused to change their mind about God. Generations. 430 years. Now, to this point, the Bible says that Joseph died at 120 years in Egypt. So if he lived 120 years, the Bible says that he actually was able to see the third generation of his son raised after Joseph died, and the Bible talks about that in Exodus, and after the king that was favorable to Joseph died. Now you have this cycle of going away from God, but they never turn back. You could say, well, they didn't have a Joseph. Well, they knew what they were supposed to have, God. They knew who they were supposed to worship, but instead of worshiping God, they turned their back on God, and the Bible says in Ezekiel, that they turned to the world. They turned to worshiping the false gods of Egypt. For 430 years, they served other gods. No doubt when they realized their plight, they turned to other gods. There's no doubt. So how do you know that? 430 years? If you don't like something and you're worshiping a god, you don't wait if you don't like something. You go right to it. And I don't know if they had one God or if they had a hundred gods and they had to pray through all of them and finally get to the end. All I know is they worshiped other gods and finally at the end of 430 years, they turned back to the one true God. It's unbelievable how many parents and how many sons and daughters and how many grandchildren had to die because they just didn't want to turn to the living true God for 430 years. Then, out of their misery, when they finally sighed, okay, I can't do this anymore. God, these are going into the trash can. I'm seeking you. The Bible says in verse 23 that they cried and their cry came up unto God. Why? By reason of their bondage. They could no longer take it anymore. Every other avenue was exhausted. All the other prayers were bouncing out the ceiling. And they finally said, wait a minute. I know who we are. We're the people of the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. Now we know where to go. Let's get our hearts right. The Bible says they cried from that. You know, it's a good sign that God is coming towards us with deliverance when he inclines and enables us to cry out for him. It's a good thing. 
that we have a God that'll wait, isn't it? It's a good thing that God will just look. By the way, do you think God was happy about those 430 years? Not a chance. Not a chance. But he would not deliver them without their cry. Think about that. Many of us want God to change our circumstances. Many of us want God to change our bondage without ever leaving the world and our false gods and turning to him in our cry. They cry. The second thing I noticed is very simpler, uh, very simple in your outline, and that's this. God heard. They cried. God heard. They got to the point where they were genuine and they cried. Then God heard. Remember, when you falsely worship other gods, God doesn't hear. So something had to change. What was it? God never changes. They had to change. God's plan had worked out, didn't it? So what was that plan? The anguish and pain of their bitter affliction had broken them. They finally got to the point where they were broken. Have you ever been broken? Have you ever had something happen where you just finally fall before the Lord and say, God, I, I can't do this anymore, and I'm so sorry for ignoring you. I need you. I need you every hour. I need you. Oh, God, I need you. His plan had worked out. In desperation, they cried out to the only living and true God, and note what happened. Their cry reached unto heaven, verse 24, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God had respect unto them. Did you see what I emphasized every time? Huh? And God, four times. Did he have to do that? Grammatically, he didn't. He could have just said, and he. And he. And he, right? That's a personal pronoun. We could say, we understand who the he is based on the first God. But what happens? God emphasizes something extremely important every time with his title. I am Jehovah. I am the promise keeping God. I am the eternal Elohim. I am the one. I am the El Shaddai. I am the one that is your banner. I am the one that's going to heal. I am the one. And he says it four times. Look, anytime God reiterates something, especially about himself, it's because he wants us to listen to what he's saying. And God, and God, and God, and God. Don't focus on your problems. Focus on God. The response of God is expressed by four verbs of very strong uh, action. I want you to take notes to this morning. Letter A, he heard their groaning. The Bible says, and God heard their groaning. He heard them. What is that? The groaning of their misery. The groaning of their desperation. Their groaning of their pain. Their groaning of their anguish. Their groaning of their anxiety. You see, the God of heaven never turns a deaf ear to a person who turns to him. Never. God always hears the cries of people who truly cry out to him for help. Truly. God heard the people's groaning. He heard their cry for help. What does it say? And God heard their groaning. You know, Psalm 109 verse 26 says, help me. Oh, Lord, my God. That's it. Oh, save me according to thy mercy. The Bible says in Jeremiah 33, 3, call unto me and I will answer thee. And show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. The fact is, they cried 
and they heard. God says, I hear your groaning. Secondly, he remembered his covenant. Uh, it, it's reiterated over and over in scripture. In Genesis chapter 9, he's speaking to Noah, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now, what does that mean? Over, I mean, I, we could go for the next 15 minutes maybe and just talk about how the Lord remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the old the Lord remembered his covenant. Verses like these, listen, in no way imply that God forgot his promise. I taught our Sunday school lesson, look, you cannot read the word of God and separate it from the character of God. God knows all things all the time. So what does it mean? It means that God is actively thinking about the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not that God was like, oh yeah, I remember now. I forgot what I promised them. And oh yeah, I forgot. I forgot that I left them in the oven too long down there in the, in, in the, in their bondage. And now, oops, I forgot. No, God doesn't forget anything. And he's certainly not forgetting you. He's not going to forget his promise. Doesn't mean that he forgot. It literally means in Hebrew that he was actively thinking about his people while he was thinking of them through his promise. I remembered my covenant. God was actively thinking about the great promises that he had made, the promises of the promised land, and the promise of the promised seed, meaning both not just the nation of the people, but the savior of the world. You see, God doesn't, he deals with us out of love, but he never deals with us outside of his plan, his plan to redeem mankind through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God is not always, not, not just interested in your present, he's interested in your future. And so God, the Bible says, remembered his covenant. I want to remind all of you this morning that God is actively thinking about you every day. And only God can do that. I can't look women have an active mind and they can think of a lot of things all the time, all day long for days on end. Guys aren't like that. We're not. We think of one thing at a time. If many things pop up, we go, I just want to talk about this one thing. Okay. Solved. Okay. What's the next thing? Okay. Don't want to talk about that right now. Let's go to something else that I think I can solve. We, We can't, we can't think of all of our family relatives and all of the problems and solve the world's problems all the time. We can't do that. But God can. God can think about every single person on this planet actively all the time, and he does. He thinks about you. He thinks about me. He thinks about your needs. He thinks about your family all the time. How? Through his promises. That's how he thinks of us. His thoughts are always along the line of his promises. Psalm 139, verse 17. Listen, how precious also are thy thoughts unto me. O God, how great is the sum of them. God declares, I think about you all the time so much that you can't count how much time I spend thinking about you. You can't count all the thoughts that I have for you. He thinks about the loss through the promise of salvation. He thinks about his children through the promise that he's never going to leave them, that he's never going to forsake them. He thinks about believers through the promise to always work all things together for good. He He looks at and thinks about the saints of God through the promises of comfort of love and compassion, of grace. He thinks about his witnesses through the promise of power. He thinks about his church through the promise of provision. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. Why? Because you have a future to bring you to an expected end. Mark it down today. 
God never stops thinking about us. He never stops thinking about us. But can I tell you, sometimes I I stop thinking about him. They stopped thinking about God. And when they decided to think about God, they cried out to God and God heard. And when he heard their cry, he remembered, I know this is along the lines of my promise. My plan is working. Now, thirdly, the Bible says that he looked upon his children. The Bible says, and God heard their groaning. Second thing is God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And then look at verse 25. And God looked upon the children of Israel. Now, I want to be very clear. This means simply that God had compassion on them. But as you know, the Bible word for compassion is compassion with an intent to help. How's that differ? One is sympathy. The other one is compassion. Sympathy means I see your plight and that's awful. Compassion says, I understand your plight and I'm going to help. The Bible says that he looked. Never let anyone try to tell you that God can be anything contrary to his character. He's not only full of compassion, but those compassions, when he sees your heart, they never fail. They never fail. Lamentations 3.32. Listen very carefully. But though, speaking of God, but though he caused grief. Wait a minute. Why would God want his children to grieve? Because they're ignoring him. Because they're worshiping something or someone other than him. Well, that's not fair. Neither is it fair that you decided to worship someone that God told you never to worship. You could not say it's fair. You could say it's not right. And the fact that God allowed you and just allowed you to continue to means that God is still good means that God is full of mercy and slow to anger. How slow? 430 years worth. Yeah. That's a pretty slow to anger. But though he caused grief, notice what it says, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. That is an amazing verse. Matthew 9, 36. Who was Jesus? God in the flesh. He was God manifested in the flesh. They looked upon him as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That man, the, man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. See, there's no changing God. Whether he's in heaven in the Old Testament as he looks down and has compassion on his people or when he physically comes to earth, the greatest sign that God is full of compassion is that he sent Jesus Christ into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. You can't doubt that love moved first. Jesus Christ came to us because we weren't coming to him. He pursued and he overcame and he helped us. Why? Because that's what a compassionate God does. The Bible says that he looked on the people as children of Israel. And then notice number four, God had respect unto them. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting? You remember back in Genesis when Abel had respect his sacrifice? The Bible says that God had respect unto Abel's sacrifice, but not unto Cain's. Remember that? The Hebrew word wayeta literally means that he knew or he knew experientially He knew feelings for them. God knew all about the pain. 
he reiterates this so that people can't say, well, he doesn't know what I'm going through. Wait a minute. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we, yet without sin. God knows everything. Experientially, he knows. He knew all about their pain. He knew all about the terrible affliction that they were suffering, and he writes it in his word, and he emphasizes over and over and over again, I want you to know that I hear you, that I haven't forgotten my expected end for you. I want you to know I feel and I see your suffering, and I want to do something about it. God was not content simply knowing that they were crying out, hearing their cry, and seeing their plight. He was not content with that. You understand that? The Bible is very clear that he was, though he was acquainted with all the sorrow and all the grief, he saw the sincerity of their heart. He saw the genuinity of their heart. And he saw that they were ready to turn back to him. That means that he knows all about you. He knows whether you're ready today or not. He knows whether or not your life is just going to continue in the bondage and he's willing to wait. Praise God that he's willing to wait. Praise God that he just doesn't take us off this planet and say, I'm done like he did in Noah's day. Praise God that he's willing through the blood of Jesus Christ, not just to see us, but he's willing to wait for us until our groans become, our sides become groanings. Until finally our hearts are repentant and ready to cry out. The point is this, the people were broken and repentant. They had learned the way of the transgressor is hard. They knew the bitterness and the terrible consequences of their sin. They felt it every day they woke up. See, how do you know that? Because they were in bondage. Because with rigor, they were forced to serve the higher power. They were, but they were there because of their own sin. The Bible's clear. They were now ready to turn away from their false worship. They were ready to turn back to the one true God. They cried out in desperation for God to help. And God heard their cry. Listen very carefully. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Then, one of the greatest words in all the Bible as the statements, if then. Then will I hear from heaven. Then will I forgive their sin. Then will I heal their land. What changed? God didn't change. His promises didn't change. His thoughts for his people never changed. His observation of their plight never changed. His love never changed. But theirs did. Their love changed. Their loyalty changed. Where they were looking changed. And God says, I have respect for that. I know experientially what you're going through, which means, number three, God will deliver. Now both Moses and Israel in the backstory had been prepared spiritually and mentally for God to deliver his people out of Egypt. Now God could begin anew to fulfill great promises to his people. Listen, the frequent repetition of the name of God here intimates that now we can expect something great. Okay, as you read the story for yourself, go back, start in Exodus 1, read through and get to this part. And when you read, and God heard, and God remembered, and God looked, and God had respect, it just leaves itself for chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. I wonder what God's going to do. It's as if God was writing the Bible himself. 
It's as if God reveals to us, listen, I want you to know that when you decide that I'm preeminent, when you decide you need me and you recognize, look, this plot is my fault. I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want another generation to go by. And you turn to me, expect me to do something amazing because I'm already planning that anyway. I'm just waiting for you. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro to the whole earth. Why? To show himself strong on the behalf of those who have a heart that is perfect toward him. Herein, the Bible says, thou hast done foolishly. Therefore, thou shall, or, henceforth thou shalt have wars. What's he waiting for? Us. So that when we turn with expectancy, we can say, the Lord heard our cry. Now I'm just waiting for him. Now I know he's going to do something. You see, when God's eyes rest on the clean heart of his child and, his, and he hears the repentant cry for his help, he always hears with the one intent to help. That's his whole heart is to help. How do you know that? He sent Jesus to help, to save us. Uh, you can't disprove that. You have to accept the fact that if God hears the cry of a pure heart, that it's with the intent to do something about it. So he delivers two ways. Letter A, in his time. And letter B, in an amazing way. In his time and in an amazing way. We know God delivers them in his time, which wasn't their time. And it wasn't even their way. See, how do you know that? Well, since you brought it up, Moses comes onto the scene a little later and he goes, hey, I'm here because God sent me here. Remember, if they ask who sent me, what do I say? I am sent me. And they all said, okay, that's good enough. We know that was the code word. We were looking for the, you know, the entrance word. I am sent me. Okay, you got it. So they march into Pharaoh. Let my people go. I don't even know your God. I don't even, I don't know your God. So I'm not listening to your God. I want you to get out of here. No, look, let my people go. That we should go and sacrifice unto God. No. In fact, it seems like you have too much time in your hands. That's what it says. Read the Bible. It looks like you, to me, from where I'm sitting, you have too much time in your hands. So here's what we're going to do. We're not going to give you straw anymore. But the tally of your bricks shall not fail. So the demand stays the same. But now y'all got to go get your own hay. You got to go get your own straw. The Bible says they went out. There was no straw. They started getting sticks and stubble and bringing it in. And they were beating them and demanding that they continue to go. Wait a minute. They cried out. Their cry was heard. But God was moving in his time. Isn't it interesting? You know what I learned by that? Sometimes our timing is not God's timing. Sometimes it's just not our timing. It's, it's not God's time. Listen, the way we roll, it's always our time. In fact, it's all about our time. I want it now. I want it hot and juicy. I want a double cheeseburger with onions on it. Don't forget that I want grilled onions. Don't forget I don't want no tomatoes. Don't mess it up. And I want it now. I don't want to wait in this snake long thing all the way past Denny's. When I get to in and out I don't want anybody in my way. Why? Because I want it now. Right? It's all about our timing, isn't it? Let's just confess to God, God, most of my life has been lived for me. And from my time and what I see fit. And I don't care that I didn't worship you. I've been living my life. God, I'm done. 
I'm just done. I don't want to live the same way. I don't want another generation to go by. I don't want another death in the family. I don't want another day in bondage. I want you to deliver me. God, help me. You know the crazy part about that? Is that the elders went back to Moses and said, we have it worse since you showed up. And then God said to Moses, okay. All right. Hold your horses. Because what I'm about to do in about 10 days worth, you're going to look at the land of Egypt and think two words, scorched earth. And what did he do? Not only did he deliver them in his time, he did it in an unbelievable fashion. Go back and read what the surface of the moon looks like after the earth has been changed into it. You see very quickly in less than three days, there was nothing left. The whole place was done in the middle of the plagues in a matter of three days they had nothing and even the egyptian wise men turned to pharaoh and said you're an idiot this is the finger of god and you need to get these people out of here and he didn't listen you know the bible says unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think that's the god that has a plan According to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory. Oh, look, in the church, both now, or uh, throughout all ages, world without end, in every age. What does God want? He wants glory because what he wants to do is far more listen than he is doing. Do you realize that? What does God want to do? He wants to sow himself strong. On the behalf of anybody who has a right heart. Now wait a minute. How much strength does God have? Ah, All of it. What does that mean? There's no limitations to God's power. That's the God. Who has a plan for your life. That's the God. Who wants to show his power. Through you. He wants to do the exceedingly. But see we. We think too small of our lives. In fact, we think too small of God's plan, and that's our downfall. As we know, God delivers them, and he did it in an amazing way. way. Trust me when I say that oftentimes the Christian life is a life of waiting. We wait for salary to increase. We wait for a promotion. We wait for recognition. We wait for our health to get better. We wait for our family to come around or our friends to wake up. We wait for our government to change or policies to change. And in doing that, we grow weary. We grow impatient, bitter, angry. No doubt in my mind in 430 years, that's what they felt. They felt abandoned by God, even though they're the ones that turned their back. There's no doubt in my mind. The problem is, In waiting for all of those things to change, we're waiting on the wrong thing. We're not waiting on God. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It's good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut out, thou shalt see it. Mark the perfect man, and behold the upright. For the end of that man 
is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them. Because they that wait trust in him. You see, as you take the narrative forward from here, what do you see? One minute they're trusting, the next minute they're doubting. One minute they're trusting, the next minute they're doubting. One minute they're happy, the next minute they're angry. One minute they're content, the next minute they're covetous. All through their life. And even up in just a few chapters, God gives a glimpse. If you don't know the narrative, God gives a glimpse glimpse that they wasted more time of their life. 40 more years. Why? Because they didn't want to be content with the one person who always heard them, that always knew them, that had respect unto them and thought of them only one way. I have a perfect plan for your life, but you just won't trust me. In In their ease, Israel forgot God as love. And God in his love chastened Israel toward repentance. Then in repentance, God's people turned back to God. God was stirred. He moved. And then he acted in an amazing way to show the world. And the Bible says it when he speaks to Pharaoh in all of the plagues that all the world may know that I am God. The world is going to look at Egypt and go, oof. That is the living God. You know how the Bible says that people would come to Jerusalem and say, no, yeah, we've heard you worship the living God. We're here because we've heard your story. We've seen nations go by the wayside, and, 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 and many, some of them didn't, but some of them did fear. Why? Because of God in them. He wants to show the world that if they will seek him, they will find him, and they'll, he will show them just how amazing he really is. Let me ask you this. Do you know how amazing God is? What's my point? My, des- my point is a new year, a new desire. This is a new year. I wonder if you have a desire to turn back to God. And say, God, this, is, this was last year, spiritually for me. I, I want to cry out to you, and my desire is that you would actually hear. There's no doubt for 430 years, somebody was praying, but God didn't hear that. Why? Because their hearts weren't there. Do you have a new desire to have a new heart today to say, you know, Lord, I, I don't, I, I, I want, I want, I want to be heard. Who doesn't want to be heard? I want to be heard by God. I want him to move with compassion on my life. I want him to forgive me of my sin. I want to turn back to him so that he can do something amazing in me and through me. That's the desire. That's the heart. Of a 21st century disciple in the midst of a land that's going wacko. All of the noise and all of the voices. Does the Lord have your attention? Has he been trying to get it? Does he have your heart? Has your life become soft and without need of the living God? Because that is a dangerous place to live. If so, then maybe God could hear the cry of his people this morning turning back. Say, God, here's my desire. Here is my desire. I want to live in your plan, and I want you to do something amazing in my life. Let's bow our heads for prayer this morning. Father in heaven, as we prepare now to take the Lord's table briefly, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to watch over us, God, to move in us these 
people are here who have listened so well, God, and I am I'm so grateful. Now I'm going to ask, God, that you would listen to us. I'm going to ask for the heart here this morning who has such a desire to seek your face. Lord, that if there is any sin whatsoever that you reveal, that you would bring them to the point of repentance. Lord, I don't know the details surrounding these people's lives. I don't know if you've been trying to get their attention and the subtle hints is not doing it, are, are not doing it and circumstances are changing to try to get their attention. I, I, I just don't know that, but I know that you do because you think about all of us all the time at the same time. And only you can help us. God, we confess. We need you. And I pray for every heart that they would simply cry out unto the Lord from whatever their circumstances are. And they would give up, whether it's their independence or their dependence on someone other than you. But that our hearts would be turned back together. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to have Jenna begin to play. And I wonder this morning, would you take just a minute? two or three minutes would you allow God to search you and know your heart to try and know your thoughts and if he finds any wicked way there would you would you give him the privilege and the honor he deserves to lead you out of that into the way everlasting would you do that would you just tell God what your desire is today God here is my desire for my relationship with you Here's my desire for my life in Christ. Here's my desire as a Christian. Maybe a new year goal could be, Lord, my desire is yours. I need to be more like Christ. I need to be more humble. I need to be more spirit-filled. Lord, I need to be a better husband. I need to be a better wife. Because... Lord, I don't want to live in bondage to my feelings anymore. I don't want to live in bondage to sin. I want to turn and give you all of my faith and all of my worship. 